You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. It is good to be with you in worship this morning. What a time of worship we've had already. Amen? Beautiful. So we're in the book of Genesis, and I, um, I couldn't decide. I actually, as I was preparing for this morning's message, I, I was going to tell you a joke to start the message. I only have five jokes, so you've heard all five of them. Um, I was going to tell you a joke, but then I found this story that's kind of a very serious story. So I'll just do an audience poll here. Would you rather have the joke or the very serious story? The story. Okay, good, good. That's, that's the good. So I'd have a hard time remembering the joke if you told me to ask me to do the joke. Or maybe is that, a, is that some kind of a statement on my ability to tell jokes? Is that what that is right there? Okay, so the story. Anyway, um, it's about, uh, this is a real story, of um, Philip Hancock. Philip Hancock was put to death by lethal injection on November 30th last year, so just a couple, three months ago. Um, he was put to death because he, in, in, in Oklahoma, because he killed two men. It was drug-related. Um, it was not his first rodeo, actually. He had another charge previous in um, manslaughter and served three years for that. And uh, so he was um, given the death penalty in Oklahoma, and he waited 20 years, waited 20 years for that death penalty finally to come um, to, to happen to him. And somewhere along the way, he, he, had, he had grown up in the church. Uh, Philip had grown up in the church, um, was a follower of Jesus, and somewhere along the way in his early 20s, he lost it. And um, so by the time he got to this place in his life, in these last especially 10 years or so, he completely denied the existence of God. Um, it was pretty, um, I guess, uh, kind of stringent about that, his disbelief. And so he'd asked for a non-Christian chaplain to help him, to, to, to serve him in his final years on death row. And such a thing exists. There is an atheist chaplain um, in the world. He, and, and they found a guy. His name is Devin Moss. Devin Moss uh, went to a seminary, a humanist seminary in, I don't know where, Chicago, someplace. Um, not Augusta. It's not in Augusta. I can tell you that right now, um, or I'd know about it. But um, and he he's from New York, and he made the decision, uh, Chaplain Moss, to minister to this guy, Philip uh, Hancock. And uh, over the over the last year or so, especially, he really walked with Philip toward um, his final days. And at one point, gave up his, I guess the last month that Philip was alive, he gave up his, or, or sublet his apartment in New York so he could spend his full time in Oklahoma um, serving the sky as he was coming into his final days. The reason that uh, Hancock's lawyers worked really hard to get the, the death sentence commuted for him. Um, and in fact, right there toward the end, the parole board voted 3-2 for him not to be put to death. But um, uh, the, the governor overturned their decision, and he was, in fact, put to death. And the reason, and it was said, this was said several times in the story that I read, that the reason over and over that he 
he was not, they, they didn't pull the sentence from him, was that he never felt regret. He, there's no, no question about him doing it. He just never felt sorry for it. He was very defensive. It was somebody else's fault. It, you don't know. I was doing it in self-defense. So he, he never felt regret, even though there were, there were people who could testify to what he, you know, to what he actually did, and he just refused to feel any kind of regret. In the absence of regret, um, the governor, I guess, felt this was, and I'm, this is not a statement for or against capital punishment. I'm just telling you what happened. The governor decided to, to have him put to death. Toward the end, toward the end, uh, Chaplain Moss was trying to decide how to best serve him as he went to the, to the, ch to the chamber where he was um, injected. And um, so there's no prayer, you can say, because they didn't believe in God. <laughs> um, there was no, uh, there, what, are, what are the words of hope he could give? And, and what Philip said he most wanted to know was that he was loved and that he was not alone. And when I saw when I read that, I was just going, my heart broke, you know? Because there's an easy way to get that. <laughs> it comes through Jesus. There's an easy way to get that assurance. I am loved, I am not alone. But in the absence of a Savior, in the absence of a God at all, it was another human being just standing next to him saying, you're loved, you're not alone, you're, not, you're loved, you're not alone. And, 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 and the chaplain could not somehow find his way out of saying some kind of prayer. And so he prayed in the spirit of humanity. The whole story just kind of sat so heavy with me because I, I thought for the lack of an ability to feel regret, this guy lost his chance at life. Isn't that so sad? And, and, and here's, I guess, the moral of the story. As long as we have breath, it's not too late to try again. <laughs> and, and that sometimes regret is just sort of a, a, a way of getting ourselves in, in the presence of God with a spirit of humility, not the spirit of humanity, but the spirit of humility that allows us to actually um, receive the grace of God. How do I get back the years? If I, if, I am, if I am presenting to Jesus with regret, how, how do I get back the years that were flat out stolen from me before I had a chance to make a difference in the world? How do I get back the years I floundered around trying to figure out who I am? How do I get back all those years when pride and fear stopped my progress? I'm guessing I'm not the only person in this room who's ever asked those kinds of questions. Do I have any other, if I could begin again, people in the room? Yeah. I don't think it is an age-specific thing either. So students, I want you to hear, regrets do not card us at the door. <laughs> they don't look through your mail to make sure you're on the mailing list of AARP. They don't. Um, which, by the way, Steve is, but I am not. So make of that whatever you want. What I'm trying to say is that we can have regrets at any age, and regrets may actually be a, a pathway toward grace. So I'm wondering if you could have the years back, how would you finish this sentence? If I could start over. If I could start over. In fact, there's an index card in the pocket that's in front of you. So find that index card. Maybe you'll pull it out and write that sentence starter at the top of the card or, or just open a notes page on your phone, whichever you want. 
and then finish it for yourself. I'm going to give you about 30 seconds to go ahead and just whatever comes to your mind, write it down. If, if, how would you finish that sentence? If I could start over. If I could start over, I was surprised for myself when I did this exercise myself last week. I thought I would have said I would never have tasted beer. But as it turns out, because that, you know, has like led me down a, a whole path, but that actually wasn't the thing that, that when I kind of boiled all down, it was more about I, if I could start over, I would work harder to get a mentor. I would have sought more of God's wisdom. That kind of stuff seemed a lot more important to me. I wonder, do I have anybody in the room bold enough to share what you'd do over if you were given a do-over? Anybody? Yes. Wiser, less impulsive. That's really good. Wisdom was actually in my list, so I really like that. Anybody else? Yes. Ooh, that's good. I wouldn't let my physical boundaries keep me from seeking God. Yes, ma'am. I would work harder to learn and just listen than just listen. To learn than just listen. Okay, that's a really good one. Anybody else? Yes. So the pain that I have being raised as I would, I would have, I would have not carried that pain, uh, not laid it back onto my children. That's really good. So I wonder, what would you change? Would you, would you waste less time holding grudges, being angry? Would you have responded differently to the dysfunctional people in your life or spent less time trying to figure out what you're going to be when you grow up so you could just actually grow up? Would you have spent less time worrying about your hair? Can I just get an, uh, on this one? On those, there you go. I was waiting for some of you who are hair challenged to raise your hands. <clears throat> Would you have worked harder on your character defects, spent less time feeding your fears and anxieties, or maybe spent more time on your dreams or on your family? Would you have spent more time with God, not just knowing about him, but actually really knowing him? If I could do it again, if I could do it again, how would I deal with my regrets? Does it surprise you to find out that God has regrets? We're in the book of Genesis this year, and today we're walking through the story of Noah and the flood, which runs from chapter 5 to chapter 9. And so if you have your Bible, I want you to turn with me to chapter 6, and we're going to read the, the heart of this story there are more than 500 accounts in, in antiquity of a flood story happening, accounts from all kinds of other traditions and people with other faiths. And so we've, we've, when you've got 500 witnesses, you can be pretty sure something happened. 
So what we're reading is an account of history, but from, from the perspective of those who followed the one true God. Chapter six begins, when human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of human were, humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. And then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. I'm going to stop here just long enough to say that if this confuses you like anything, it's okay. It's a very confusing thing. And there are lots of different theories about these sons of God. Some people say they are the sons of angels or they are themselves the fallen angels. Other people say these are just people who, for whatever reason, had some, a kind of unusual strength or height or, or stature. And um, so Sandra Richter would probably fall in that in that latter category. But either way, this is not where we're going to place the weight of our, um, of our time this morning, but I wanted to stop and just say that so you don't feel like you're out of your league. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of human heart was only evil all the time. So this is a special brand of evil. Is this, I mean, you got to look at how evil the world is right now, and God hasn't wiped it away, so this must have been a whole other kind of evil going on. The Lord regretted, this is a, Genesis 6.6, 6, the Lord regretted, I want you to underline that line, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them, the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah, this is 6.8, Noah found favor. I want you to circle that word favor. We'll come back to it. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you're to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long. A cubit is from the top of your middle finger all the way to your elbow. It's about 18 inches long. So 300 cubits would be a football field and a half. That's a big boat. That's a very big boat. 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof and opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you. You need to underline that. I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark. You and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives 
with you, you, you are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you and be, uh, to be kept alive. You're to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. And then I want you to flip over to chapter 8, starting with verse 13. They've now been through the flood, they've been through all of it, and now they're on the other side. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, so he was 600 years old when this started, 601 when it's over with, he spent a year in that ark. The water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering of the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. And then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on land came out of the ark, one kind after another. And then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again. This is no child's story. This is a deeply painful story about humanity's problems and God's regrets and about a time when, if anything less than a gracious and merciful God were in charge, humanity would not have survived. To get the whole story, chapters 5 through 9, you have to really start back at chapter 5. This was the prequel to what we just read. This is a chapter, chapter 5, it's a, it's a genealogical list that helps us get from Adam's generation to Noah's generation. If you're looking at the chapter in your Bible right now, you're going to notice that people lived a long time back then. Do you remember the old adage, old as Methuselah? Well, that comes from this chapter. Methuselah wins the award for the number of years lived, 969 years. You've been through a few pairs of sneakers if you've lived 969 years. Oddly, his father, Enoch, he lived only 365 years. By the beginning of chapter 6, then, God has decided this is way too long for people to live. You have way too long to develop bad habits. So we're going to limit the life to 120 years. He's already begun to lose patience with a warped and evil people. He's given us free will, but our choices, whew, they're worse. They're so much worse than I thought your choices would be. <laughs> but even inside our depravity, there are signs of hope. Enoch was known, the guy who lived 365 years, he was known as a righteous man. In fact, he was actually taken from the earth. There's no indication he died. God just took him. And Noah, who was Enoch's grandson, was also known as faithful. These were men who were noticed for their faithfulness. Their, their witness in the story of God reminds us that actually, you know what? We belong to a family, and if we want to serve that family well, we won't do it by playing it safe. We serve our families best by learning to walk in radical obedience to God. 
That's why Noah was willing to do something as radical as build an ark on a sunny day because as one who walked with God, he understood the importance of following God's call on his life, not just for himself. Noah's radical obedience affected his whole family, literally kept them alive. So the writer of Hebrews could say, by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark what? How? Why? To save his family. In faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. In holy fear, he built an ark to, to save his family. What a great line. That is actually physically what Noah did for his family. But what a word for us. My question for you is this. What has God called you to do that may feel completely counterintuitive, like building an ark on a sunny day? But in obedience, listen, in obedience has the capacity to affect your family for generations to come. Let's go back to some of those things that you wish you could do over. Because of grace, you can have a do-over now. And it could affect your family for generations to come. We've all heard stories like that of people, my dad stopped drinking in his 50s and it changed our whole family. We started going to church later in my parents' life and it changed our whole family. Last week, we, we learned that obedience is freedom. This week we learned that obedience is how we best serve our families. I'm talking about generations. Has God been calling you to do something as crazy as building an ark on a sunny day or something small but faithful that offers the witness of obedience to your children and their children? So that's chapters, as we, as we get into chapter 5, Getting into chapter 6, now chapter 6 and 7, this is God's regret. Some of the saddest lines in the whole story of God are in the story of Noah, especially chapter 6 where we hear the why God does what he does. This is where we find out that God has regrets. Chapter 6, verse 6 says, The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. The version called The Message puts it this way. God saw that human evil was out of control. People thought, people thought evil, imagined evil, 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 from morning to night. God was sorry that he made the human race in the first place. It broke his heart. And so God said, I'll get rid of my ruined creation, make a clean sweep. People, animals, snakes and bugs, birds, the works. I'm sorry I made them. That's so sad, isn't it? But it says it well. It's not just a few bad decisions on the part of a few people. This was total depravity, and even God longed for the ability to start over. And it's not the only time we hear that God had regrets. God was sorry he made Saul a king. We read that in the scripture. Jeremiah says God was sorry for bringing the fall of Jerusalem on his people when he sent them into captivity in Babylon. So God is capable of being sad about things and about how things turn out. But his regret is not exactly like our regret 
Listen, the sense is that when God expresses regret, it isn't that he has done wrong, but that humans, with all their free will in play, have taken his decisions and their consequences and have made the absolute worst out of them. And that grieves the heart of God. In other words, judgment is always hard on God first. You should write that down. Judgment is always hard on God first. There's a line in Zechariah 1.15 that says it so well. The prophets talking to the Babylonians and are talking about how the Babylonians who benefited from Israel's exile used their place of power to crush God's people. And God says, listen to this, he says, I was only a little angry, but they went too far with the punishment. That's God's brand of regret. Not that he's done wrong or that he would change his mind, but that he is working with imperfect players who take his discipline too far. People who don't understand how to walk in grace and mercy. So we, you know what, we get this. How many times did you start a conversation with somebody over something little, and before it was over with, yeah, somebody had blown it out of the water? Not, not you? Okay, the other people in the room. Not y'all, people you know. So we experience the consequences of our actions, and then we... And then we turn them, instead of, instead of looking for the grace of God, we turn them into shame. Or we're on the receiving end of someone else's mistake and forget how to offer grace. You know, after that line in Zechariah where God expresses regret for how the Babylonians took it all too far, he says, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt. My towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. That's how God deals with our fallenness. He does it with grace. Grace is that stubborn ability to God, of God to not let go. And the great hope in the midst of our sin is that ours is a God of second chances. He can resurrect things that look for all the world like dead. In fact, God can resurrect things that are really actually dead. So the flood story in Genesis is a foreshadowing of the resurrection to come and the grace that will flood a world gone wrong. The promise given in Genesis 7, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. That promise, and the, that promise, I mean, it's brought into the New Testament before, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even though every inclination is evil from childhood, that promise that God gives to not destroy us, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, those two things together give us hope that no matter how bad we've been, no matter how ridiculous our sins, we can be forgiven, redeemed, saved, brought through the storm. You know what a rolling stop is, right? Yeah. It's one of my favorite uh, examples. A rolling stop is what we do when we get to an intersection we, we sort of stop, but not really. 
you pull up to the stop sign, you check around you real quick, and then you sort of pull out before you've actually stopped. And then, about the time your hood is in the intersection, like in the middle of the intersection, you see a cop behind a tree looking for people just like you who roll through intersections without actually stopping. And so you're in the middle of the road at this point, but you actually hit the brakes and stop completely, and then you start again. And that's the step many of us miss in this life. We want to roll through the intersections. We want to bow up at any idea that we might have done anything wrong. We want to somehow paper over the stuff we've, we've got in our lives and just roll on through. We don't really want to stop the old behavior. We don't really want to submit to holiness, which is the life Jesus calls us to. We just want to slow down, make sure we're not about to kill or be killed, and then roll through. But look at the pattern of the resurrected life. The body stops. There's a period of facing the enemy of our soul, of facing the lies and speaking truth over them. That has to happen on the way to starting again. Resurrection is not about rolling through an intersection. It's about killing the old life so something new, completely new, can be reborn. So maybe there is a new beginning trying to break through into the surface of your life. And the Word of God would affirm this, that as long as you have breath, it is not too late to start again. When Noah comes out of the ark, the first thing he does is worship. When it's all over, when the water is gone and the land is dry and the plants start to sprout again, Noah and the animals disembark. And right there, standing on dry ground, the first thing Noah does is build an an altar as an act of worship, sacrificing some of the animals and birds, animals and birds that God actually asked him to put on the ark for this purpose. And that seems to me like quite a sacrifice to kill something you just spent a year trying to save. But maybe that's the point. Maybe altars. We learned this last summer when we did Ezra. Do you remember this? Altars are made, first of all, for real sacrifice, for things we feel the loss of when we let go of them. Maybe altars aren't where we put our leftovers or extras, but where we lay down the very things we want to hang on to, even our regrets. Maybe altars are the place where we lay down the very things we want to hang on to, maybe even our regrets. In a few minutes, in fact, we're, we're, we're going to listen to the sound of grace, and we're going to be given an opportunity to respond. And I hope some of you are led to bring those little cards, your regrets, and lay them on the altar in the spirit of hope that as long as you have breath, it's not too late, friends. Do you know that four times in chapters 8 and 9, after Noah steps off the ark and worships him, God says, never again, never again. Those two words, that's the definition of hope. (laughs) 
Never again will I curse the ground because of humans. Never again will all life be destroyed because of the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Never again. God promised never again. So the last word over Noah's family was not a word of destruction, but a word of promise, of hope. The flood does not get the last word. Thanks be to God. The storm does not get the last word. The promise of God gets the last word. And that is still true today. The promises of God, which come to us on the grace of God, still call out today, asking to be the last word over your life and over mine, over your home and over mine, over your family and over mine. Because of God's promises and because of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, the last word over every human being is is the promise of God and the grace of Jesus. Come on, y'all. Karl Barth, in a really important theological work called Church Dogmatics, talks about the times in history when the church has survived only by fighting against the weakest parts of itself. That idea translates. We survive only as we resist or surrender the, the, the weakest parts of ourselves to God. Does that make sense? So in that discussion about the church, Bart makes this statement that even in the worst of times, grace was not destroyed. It maintained its quiet force. I like to think of that as what happened in this passage of humanity through that very narrow tunnel of survival, through the worst catastrophe in human history, when almost but not everything was destroyed by its own foolishness. Even then, grace was not destroyed. Even then, it maintained its quiet force. Even before people knew Jesus was in the heart of God, grace was present and in the air. There's a thing in Bible study called the law of first mention. It, it, it's when, when you see a theme or a word show up for the first time in the Bible, you're supposed to notice it. It's, it's introduced on that page in that story for a purpose, on purpose. So do you know when the word grace first shows up in the in this, uh, story of God? Oh. In Noah's story. How cool is that? It shows up in Noah's story in Genesis 6-8, just after God talks about his regrets, just after we hear that every inclination of humanity was wrong, the story says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In your Bible, the word might be translated as favor or mercy, but the Hebrew is hen, which is most often translated as grace. So before Noah is described as righteous, he is mentioned as having the grace of God. So there's your pattern. Grace comes before you deserve it. So what traveled with Noah through the waters of that flood when just about everything else was destroyed? What traveled with Noah, what survived with him was the grace of God promising all humanity that as long as we have breath, it is not too late to try again. So I imagine Noah stepping out of that ark for the first time and into grace. 
That's what he felt and responded to maybe when he knelt in worship. Maybe Noah sensed, even before he had a name for it, that our God is the God of grace and that humanity from his family forward would be the carriers of the beautiful grace of God. Grace is what makes the promise that God will never give up on his people. Grace is that quality of God that carries us through the storms. And grace is literally, literally what binds us to life. So I want to ask you to do something. I hope this works like it sounds in my head. It's going to require you to lean in a little and um, to be a little creative. And it may also invite a response. These cards at the altar that are here, they're the first service's response. It It may invite us, as you move into this, it may invite you, you may feel compelled to bring your regrets to the altar and either pray over them here or lay them here as an act of worship, recognizing that you've still got breath and you can still start again. But first, before we get there, here's what I want you to do. I want to ask you to close your eyes. This really kind of only works if we all do this together. So close your eyes and imagine that stillness that comes after a storm. You know how quiet it can be after the rain stops? Imagine that stillness, but magnified a million times after the biggest storm of all time. Imagine that you're Noah. You've just opened the door, and you are stepping out of the ark after a year of listening to rain, incessant rain, and water, and angry animals in the ark, and destruction and devastation happening all around you. But now... You step out onto dry land, and wow, it is quiet. Maybe you can see death all around you, all the people and the animals and the plants that didn't make it. That has to feel a little scary. That stillness has to be kind of eerie. You have no idea what God's plan is, how this will play out. And you're Noah. So you don't know yet about grace and about the begin-again life that comes through Jesus. But Jesus is there, even if you don't know about him yet. Genesis 1 taught us that. And the grace of God was present at that flood just as surely as it is present in the storms you are surviving right now. Grace of God pervades everything. It's in the air. It always has been. And so you step off that boat into that deadly quiet with all your questions and your regrets and your no idea how this is going to turn out. You got all that with you. And in the air, You don't have words for it yet, but you can hear it, the sound of grace. Mm 
hear it and you receive it. And even if you don't know the words yet, you're floating in it. And so you begin to hum as you walk off that ark. You begin to hum that melody of grace, too, together. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.